0: Politics! 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 P- and, and, and I, for, for the first, first time in history, in history we're going to stand, stand here and do double, double, double selfies. selfies. And everybody... Selfies.
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome everybody to... Politics, politics, politics. My name is Justin Robert Young. Joining you today, January 8th, 2020. We got a lot here for you. We have a great interview with somebody that has a very unique perspective. Jack Helmuth has written comedy on both sides of the aisle. This man is a a political comedy writer that has written not only with our previous guest, Brian Sack, at The Blaze, but then went to work for Larry Wilmore with The Nightly Show. This guy knows how to tell a joke to both sides of the aisle, so we're going to talk to him. We're going to talk about Mayor Pete doing a Fox News town hall, the latest on the epic battle between cocaine Mitch and Nancy Pelosi on impeachment, what it means for the Democratic debates in Iowa, But, of course, there is no bigger story than Iran. I had already finished my free political newsletter, which you can get at freepoliticalnewsletter.com, when news came in that missiles struck an American military base in Iraq. Two of them, actually, to be exact. Uh, uh, Tens of missiles was how I saw it reported. I don't know if there's any further update on that. And, obviously this sent the world into a, a bit of a a panic I'll tell you what man I I, I don't know what Twitter would have been during 9-11 <laughs> like, I don't and and maybe I just need to I, I, I need to strain Twitter out for like stiff upper lip I, I, should, I should do a tweet that's like Stiff upper lip, don't show your feelings. And then everybody that likes it, I will I will follow them. Everybody that doesn't like it, I'm unfollowing you. Cause I'll tell you what, man. If you want to give yourself a panic attack, head to my Twitter feed last night. Hachi Machi. And I don't blame them. I don't think it's unreasonable. I think it's it's totally reasonable. You had the the Uncovered, unless you follow Middle Eastern news or are very dialed in to the the military actions of the region. That was an attack on a local Iraqi militia. And then, and I'm sure that there's stuff that predates this, so please nobody email me and explain to me the chain of events. This is as far as I'm going. Then we had the attacks on the American embassy. Then we have the uh, 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 murder by American forces of General Suleimani of the Quds Force in Iraq. And last night, we see the retribution after the big public funerals, the red flag of war, certainly troubling clouds on the horizon. Is this indeed the march to war, we see Iraq strike back. And that's what these missile attacks were. Now, nobody died, but still, we have an announcement by the president this morning. We're going to break that down right now. President Trump decided to start off his press conference with what reminded me of a producer tag. If you're a fan of rap music or hip hop, this is something that you are well familiar with. I don't think it's really made itself out to other genres of music, but essentially it goes something like this. As producers have become more celebrities themselves, they have consistently had ways to let you know that they made the beat you're listening to. So, for example, one of my favorite producers right now is a man by the name of Kenny Beats. Kenny Beats has a tag that goes, whoa, Kenny. Here's an example. Okay. I've been making so here's the I've been scene been this moves. morning. <laughs> Donald Trump right, comes out. Coal, Donald Trump way. steps to the podium. And Donald Trump drops his producer tag before he even begins his speech.
2: As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. All right.
1: All right. Very interesting way to start a conversation. We begin with the idea that uh, there will be a hard line in the sand, no matter what else is talked about. Let it be known that before Donald Trump says hello, he says Iran will never have a nuclear weapon As long as he's president. All right. All right. That's a little dour. You know, that's that is what we like to call a red line. Now, it's not a very aggressive red line. These kind of things take time. There are ways diplomatically via some shadow channels that you can control the development of a weapon like that. So come on out with it. Are we going to war? Here's
2: the news. pleased to inform you, the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties, all of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained Okay. On our military well, basis.
1: that does not necessarily seem like a lot of saber rattling. That seems about as much as you can to a foreign power with which you have an adversarial relationship. Seems to be a little bit of oh, you. What I would what I would characterize that as a professional political analyst is that is Donald Trump, the leader of the free world, looking at Iran, uh, uh, wagging his finger and saying, oh, you, like an adult would to Dennis the Menace. There's a reference that's older than Joe Biden. More to the point, he goes on to say that Iran's armies seem to be standing down. This is also something that uh, seems to be echoed by Iranian forces. There are reports out of Iran that the, the, the new line from them is if there is no further retaliation from the United States, then there will be no further retaliation from Iran. I don't know how much I believe that. Uh, uh, oh, I mean, I, I believe it from Iran. Because that's never been Iran's thing. Iran never does anything directly. Iran does everything via proxies. Or at least... That was the strategy of the now-deceased General Suleimani. Speaking of General Suleimani, we started to get into a history lesson with Trump's speech. When you talk about Iran, and you're a Republican, there's only one place to start.
2: For far too long, all the way back to 1979 to be exact... Nations have tolerated Iran's destructive and destabilizing behavior. Jimmy Carter's gotta be like, damn!
1: You screw up at your job once. One time. One time you screw up at your job, and it's the only thing that anybody can talk about for the rest of time, apparently. Oh, yeah, 1979, that's when everything got screwed up. Oh, jeez, I'm 95 years old, I'm Jimmy Carter, leave me alone! Quick Jimmy Carter fact I just looked up. The difference between when The Mummy Returns was shot in 2000 and the remake starring Tom Cruise, The Mummy, was released in 2017 is the age difference between 95-year-old Jimmy Carter and current presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders. That also means that if Carter were to run for president in the nearest election uh, around the age that Bernie is now, he would only be two years older than Bernie. He'd be 80 years old. And he would have run against George W. Bush in the year 2000. Oh, math. Let's get back to the speech. Why did Soleimani have to die? Trump's got answers.
2: At my direction, the United States military eliminated the world's top terrorist, Qasem Soleimani. As the head of the Quds Force, Soleimani was personally responsible for some of the absolutely worst atrocities. He trained terrorist armies, including Hezbollah, launching terrorist strikes against civilian targets. He fueled bloody civil wars all across the region. He viciously wounded and murdered thousands of U.S. troops, including The planting of roadside bombs that maim and dismember their victims. Soleimani directed the recent attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq that badly wounded four service members and killed one American, and he orchestrated the violent assault.
1: All right, so that's why we're in this situation now. But Trump couldn't leave it there. No, no, no. What Carter is to the grand unifying theory of the conservative mindset of why Iran is the situation that it is right now, the modern equivalent is the Iran deal. And boy, howdy, did Trump go hard on it.
2: Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013, and they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terrorist spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available that by the last administration. That is probably the
1: high-profile, direct claim in a situation that is not a campaign scenario. This is official business of the president, wherein he made the claim that specifically this is a casualty of Obama's nuclear deal. Like that's plain as day, right there. Black and white for everybody to see. This is Obama's fault. So, looking forward, what does Trump want to do? And I I swear to God, I should (sighs) have... I'm so annoyed with myself because I was texting back and forth with a friend of mine And I was like, I'll bet you I know what's going to happen. The Trumpiest Trump move that ever Trump, after he kills Soleimani, is to go to Iran and say, let's make a deal. (laughs) Like, that is is the most Trump move. Like, I almost feel like it's a, a... Ah, oh, God, I can't remember which Rockefeller book I was reading, but there was like this whole thing in, in Rockefeller's strategy that when your enemy is at his lowest, do not step on them. Do them a kindness. That, I believe, is the phrase almost verbatim that I'm remembering from memory from probably over a decade ago. But that is the Trump mindset. The Trump mindset is punish you, punish you, punish you. You're behind the eight ball, help you. That's his thing. He loves it. And sure enough, this is what comes out of his mouth during this
2: statement. And we must all work together toward making a deal with Iran that makes the world a safer and more peaceful place. We must also make a deal that allows Iran to thrive and prosper and take advantage of its enormous, untapped potential.
1: Oh, you have no idea how annoyed I was when I heard
2: this today.
1: I was like, why didn't I put that on the podcast? I could have been so right. Because clearly that's what my first thought was, now that it seems that we're not on the brink of World War III, is I could have been so right about something. All right. I won't lie, even if I were being shipped off to the front lines of World War Three, I would most likely still be bitching about the fact that I didn't get proper credit for my prediction. Because I'm a very small man with a very fragile ego, most likely brought on by a fractured relationship with my father that blossomed in my early adolescence. But back to Trump. Uh, Look, obviously your opinions are going to vary on him going in on Obama. But I do think that, you know, aside from John Bolton, who is probably furious that we are not going into headlong offensive action into Iran, this was a speech of de-escalation. This was a speech that, barring a dirty bomb... Sent by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard being detonated in the center of D.C., dare I say it, that Iran might be off the front page before Iowa, if not sooner. I mean, especially if this impeachment stuff goes on. I, I certainly hope, I think everybody listening to me hopes that that's the case. That might be a little over-optimistic. But this did not sound to me like the drums of war. This did not sound to me like Coalition of the Willing or Colin Powell at the UN. This was not laying groundwork for why we need to go in to to Iran. If anything, really, the only big thing that happened today was a lot of the senators, including those that are running for president, got their briefing on the imminent threats, quote unquote, that General uh, uh, Suleimani was planning because that was part of the justification for killing him was, you know, that he was imminently planning harm against the United States. Elizabeth Warren said that she did not find that evidence compelling. But on the other hand, what is she going to do, say that we shouldn't have killed him? She's already on the record as saying that, you know, he was a, a murderer of, uh, of hundreds, if not thousands of American lives. So. Trump did announce that there will be further sanctions on Iraq. That has uh, drawn the ire of Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar uh, uh, you know, made the argument that uh, sanctions are economic warfare and that they have already caused medical shortages in Iran. For which I mean you know there's a government there. Yeah. You know, some responsibility for them, right? I mean maybe if we're 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 the majority of the responsibility, maybe a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit of responsibility for the Iranian government, Ilhan. I mean just a little bit. I, what do you say, ten? Start the bidding at ten? Twenty? Maybe? No, too much. Five? Eight? Let's stay with eight. All right, everybody. Folks, if you want to support this Politics. show, head on over to com. If you're at the $3 level, you get two extra bonus podcasts a week. One on Monday, one on Thursday. Last Monday's was a pretty good one. Talked all about the Julian Castro uh, uh, announcement uh, that he is backing Elizabeth Warren. And got into a little bit of a deep dive on... What that means for Iowa. You know, we're gonna talk a little bit about impeachment, but I was gonna be shaken up. In fact, we're gonna talk about this debate that might be shaken up. But here's the big reason why you want to get on that train right now. You don't wanna miss a beat. You don't wanna be one of these folks that once I get to Iowa, once I get to Nevada, once I start getting press credentials and I'm 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 there with people, I'm at the hotel bar. You know, and I'm chatting with people, and we're doing these interviews. I've been I've been getting better, uh, uh, gearing up to to do more road work. You don't want to be left out, so don't head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. dot Sign up at the three dollar level for the bonus stuff. You get a custom RSS feed. Spoiler alert, it's not by much. It's usually by you know maybe a couple hours, but this is unofficial. The regular podcast go up a little bit earlier for Patreon folks at any level, as long as you get that custom RSS feed. Also, Raise the Dead, my history podcast all about the 1960 election and the lessons that we could learn about the 2016 election from it. Well, friends, season one is done. You can now binge the entire thing. I know a lot of you guys were like, oh my God, I, I I, would like to watch, I'd like to listen to it, I'd like to get into it, I'm really excited about it, but I hate week by week. I, I hate waiting a week in between things. Well, now, guess what? It's probably about seven hours of your life, but uh, you will be able to enjoy and binge the full Raise the Dead series As of now, thank you to everybody that uh, uh, responded to this one. We'll have an announcement on season two coming soon. In fact, if you have any questions about Raise the Dead, then please send them them right now. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Put Raise the Dead mailbag in the subject line because I'm going to be doing a mailbag episode for next week. And that's where we're going to do the announcement about season two. All right. Let's get back to the show. There will be no haggling with the House over Senate procedure. We will not cede our authority to try this impeachment. The House Democrats' turn is over. So says Cocaine Mitch. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, uh, I I, I have been on the record saying I don't exactly know what this Pelosi move is about. Uh, She doesn't have any leverage. Schumer doesn't have any leverage. You know, you can point to the New York Times article. You can point to Bolton saying that he's willing to talk if he gets subpoenaed. But up till now, you know... You don't really have a leg to stand on. You did what you could in the House. If you wanted to get all these people on the record, you could have waited. Could have waited through the Christmas break. Could have restarted there. You could have, yeah, re-kicked off the the House stuff, and you could have done stuff there. But no, it had to get impeached. You had to get impeached before uh, the the Christmas break, and so we did. And now we're here. Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch. It just won't, won't won't play these games. And now he has the votes. That's the big news. The big news is, is that now he's got 51 votes to proceed with phase one of the impeachment trial, which effectively will begin it without introducing new evidence or new witnesses, but will allow for opening arguments on both sides. And he is saying the way that they are describing it uh, is that this will happen under Clinton rules. So essentially a phase one framework similar to 1998. Mayor Pete will do a Fox News town hall a week before the Iowa caucus. This is an interesting one. A week before the Iowa caucus, Mayor Pete's going to go on Fox News. Why? Because he is gunning, gunning for that center lane, and it's going to be a big news event. I think this is a smart move for Mayor Pete. It will assuredly infuriate those that already hate him. And we covered a little bit of the Mayor Pete hate last week, but he ain't talking to them. He is talking to moderate, if not Christian, if not open-minded evangelicals that vote Democrat are willing to caucus for Mayor Pete. Why? Well, because he's a little younger, because he doesn't have a dumpster fire of a son, and because he's actually running in Iowa, unlike Deval Patrick and Mike Bloomberg. By the way, the most recent poll in Iowa, we finally started getting qualifying polls. Tomorrow we're going to get a Monmouth one. Has 23% for our leaders, a triumvirate of Mayor Pete, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren still trails. One final piece of news, the January debate deadline. Is coming up. It's on the 10th, two days from today. So I guess we'll be able to talk about it on Friday's podcast. It seems unlikely that Andrew Yang will make it. In fact, today he tweeted, uh, whatever it's cool. Now you might say that's a little bit random. But according to Andrew Yang's television commercials, all of which I've watched because I'm a crazy person... Whatever it's cool is what he teaches his kids to say whenever they're upset. Whenever they need to vent, whenever they are are a little bit too wound up, he's taught them to say whatever it's cool. And so I'm taking that. I'm reporting exclusively right here on the Politics 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 podcast that that means that. He's not making this debate, and he knows it. Now, you can't miss the January debate if there is no January debate. Guy pointing at his head dot gif. Because according to Tom Perez of the uh, Democratic National Committee, there will be no Iowa debate held by CNN and the Des Moines Register if... The impeachment trial is going on, meaning that half the stage, more than half the stage, would not be there. A reminder that qualified for this debate are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Mayor Pete, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar. Tom Steyer has yet to qualify. Cory Booker's not qualified. Andrew Yang's not qualified. So let's just take a look at those five. Because three of those five are going to have to be in D.C., They're going to have to be there for this uh, this impeachment trial, if it indeed starts. It would essentially be a debate between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. So Tom Perez is saying, all right, if that's the case, there's no debate. I don't know whether or not they would move it. I would assume CNN would be very cheesed off if they didn't move it. CNN is most likely sold all the ad slots on this. This is going to be a very well-watched debate, considering it's so close to the Iowa caucus. This is big. This is a big moment. I mean, this really affects the election. Honestly. Like, getting hot at the right moment before Iowa is the reason Barack Obama is president, electorally. So... It just adds to the puzzling element of this Pelosi gambit. Uh, folks, I just don't get it. I just have no idea what the hell is happening. Why doesn't she? I mean, this, it, this is just, it ain't going to happen. It's over. And now, in in the most infinite irony, the impeachment that was started... Because Donald Trump was using his position as an elected official to unduly affect the election of a president. Is now affecting the election of a president. (laughs) Now, it'd be one thing if it was Mitch McConnell doing it. If Mitch McConnell was like, no, I think that this debate needs to go on and on and on and on and on. I think we need to stay here forever. That'd be one thing. But this is Pelosi. Pelosi's the one doing it. I don't know. I don't know. My guest today is Jack Helmuth. He is the uh, co-host of the Questionable Material podcast with Brian Sack. He has formerly written for the BS of A with Brian Sack on The Blaze, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and... Saturday Night Live. We would like to welcome Jack to the show. How you doing, buddy? Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Now, I'm 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 pumped to have you on for a couple of reasons. Uh, for whatever I don't know why, but it has become my fascination now to just talk to comedy writers that are uh, on on big professional platforms that have to deal with politics and how that has evolved. And you. Came onto our radar because you not only are obviously the co-host with Brian Sack on the Questionable Material podcast, but you also co-created the show BS of A on The Blaze with him, which we we talked a lot about when we had Brian on. But since working at The Blaze, you then left and worked with Larry Wilmore on The Nightly Show, which I think we could charitably say has a different political point of view than any program that would appear underneath the Glenn Beck umbrella. So, let's start Precisely. let's start here with the, the the beginning of this. How did you first get into political comedy writing?
0: Well, um, political it's everything became political. So I was just a comedy writer. I just like telling jokes. I just want to make people laugh. I don't have an agenda beyond that. Now, Citizen Jack may have people that, you know, there are people that I, like, would vote for, and, you know, I had a preference, you know, Hillary and Trump. You know, I I know who I voted for, but as a comedian, I don't care. Like, they both have funny things to be made fun of, so we should just make fun of them all the time. But, you know, Hillary was distrusted, and and, and Trump obviously has a, a wealth of things that you can make fun of. So to me, it's just it's all sort of fair game. Um, And that sort of is is sort of how I was brought up in my early days of comedy. It's just you just make fun of everybody. You certainly make fun of the president because just like you make fun of your boss at work. Um that's just you know, part and parcel. That's just what you should do. Um then the Daily Show became what it was and such a smash success that, you know, maybe the the best comedy show uh you know of the last 15 years, um, in the John Stewart era. And, um, and then everything sort of changed, everything started getting so polarized that, uh, you know, nowadays you can't do late night TV without doing just a ton of political stuff. It's, it's all, it's almost all there is now. It, it's just knockoffs of the daily show. I mean, that's what Colbert's entire monologue is, is just, is, you know, is so much of that show is, is the, is, um, the Daily Show, obviously Seth Meyers, you know, and these are all super talented people with incredible funny writers and, and staffs. But um, they, you know Sam B, uh, Hasan Minaj, um, you, Larry Wilmore. When we were doing it, Jordan Klepper. After Wilmore, sure, it's, it's just uh, John Oliver, uh, Bill Maher. I mean, it's all political now. Well, let me let me so ask you this so though. So I'm not sure I sought to be political. It yeah. sort of found me. No, you you worked at Saturday Night Live
1: from from when to when?
0: Uh, from nineteen ninety seven to two thousand. Because in that
1: period, if 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 I'm going to do my my taxonomy of the the politification of comedy or or the rise of mm-hmm. political comedy away from like the capital steps to the mainstream, right? Yep. Uh one of the forefathers that kind of gets undersung is is Norm Macdonald. That Weekend Update, yes, was. Intensely political, like like to to the point where even when you watch it now, uh, he is doing jokes about Hillary Clinton that some people would be like even when it when it became on the right something fashionable to just say the worst possible things about Hillary Clinton. He's kind of a forefather of that. Is there a reason why you think that? I mean, is is he the kind of uh, a Crispus Attucks of this Revolutionary War? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, perhaps. I mean he – well, I mean Bill Maher did precede that politically incorrect guess, was yeah, on before yeah. uh, before that. I mean and look, I got my first joke on with Norm. I just hung out with Norm uh, two months ago. He did a, a stand-up show, and I went backstage. And uh, and so so you know I round the corner and it's just Norm and his assistant and my wife and uh, and one other person I have the corner of my eye and it's, uh, it's Louis C.K. Oh wow! <laughs> so we're hanging, we're hanging backstage and it's like the five of us just like chatting about comedy for twenty minutes. It was crazy. That sounded name dropping, which is not. Uh, no, uh, no, no, I, no. But I'll tell you was what. Like, uh, if there's it, one it was thing like, I crap. know. If there's one thing I know about that room. Very specific
1: points of view on very current topics. <laughs> that's, yes, that's absolutely, what I would which is guess. so fun. Yeah.
0: It's super fun. So, so Norm does deserve a lot of uh, credit because he, again, he just didn't care. He'd make jokes about the Clintons murdering people. And it yeah. wasn't because he had a, a right-wing philosophy or an agenda. He's just like, yeah, they're probably murdering people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, it's and, and, and specifically hilarious. like Bill murdering Hillary and uh, uh, <laughs> that's, you know, I, I, periodically I'll just go back and watch. Some of those, but it's it's fascinating. With his comedy, he really just built his own universe, you know, like to the yep. point where you kind of always knew where the joke was going, and sometimes you could tell, and the tension was: is he gonna say it again? I hope he says it again. Uh, and some of it was kind of surprising. <laughs> uh, but but uh, that, that. So what was the first joke that you got on with Norm?
0: Oh man, it was um. It's funny. He asked me the same thing the other uh, just a couple months ago when I saw him. It, it. I'm telling you. So it got like a 25% laugh. So I'm gonna we get a lead in with that. That's that fine. It did not That's fine. do great. All right. So the joke was something like this. Um, this is the it, the first time I ever submitted jokes. I wrote ten jokes. I thought I was like, you know, the king of the world because I wrote <laughs> ten whole jokes in a week, and as uh, it's like twenty two year old kid. And um, so, I, uh, but and I got one on, and it is, it is this joke? Um, this week, uh, a, a Florida bound Amtrak train crashed into the back of a tractor trailer carrying bag sand. Thankfully, no injuries were reported. However, the accident did draw protests from the People for the Ethical Treatment of Sand. (laughs)
1: That's funny. I mean, it's a very norm joke, you know. Yes,
0: it's it's a norm joke, you know. Not bad. And it got like, like you said, like twenty five percent laugh, you know. Like, and they, they, uh, Norm and Jim Downey told me afterwards that they thought it was a smart joke. It didn't get a good laugh in dress rehearsal either, but they kept it because they thought it was smart. But still even like on a show like Center Live, if twenty five percent of the people at home in that moment laughed because they're watching live and you have an audience of eight million people, that means two you just made two million people laugh. And it was the best feeling in the world, man.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, uh I don't know. And 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 we can get into kind of criticizing where political comedy is. In fact, that's what we're gonna do right now. Please. Because I think it's Please. very I think it's very lazy. And and this is kind of I think the, the yeah. crux of my fascination is that we've moved away from a point. So like that joke, for example, right? That's I got a 25% laugh in the room, but the, the joke yep. is that we are taking PETA to a hilarious level, right? Like, like what yeah. is what is the, the absolute end of compassion? <laughs> and it is the people that are <laughs> that want ethical treatment for sand. Uh yes. at, at least it takes you on a journey. It makes you walk through whether or not you <laughs> like PETA. Uh uh I, I kind of feel like now, and certainly SNL is is a huge proponent of this. The the jokes are either, let's just repeat a thing that happened, or, oh. and this was kind of the 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 point of, you know, we, we talked to a, a, an old Jimmy Kimmel writer, uh, Jack Allison, a few uh, months ago. Oh, cool. But his point was, the spot in the monologue that used to be reserved for the biggest laugh going into the break, now is there for the point that we can all clap for.
0: That's exactly right,
1: and 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 that's something that I think is a fundamental shift. Uh, why do you think that's happened?
0: Oh boy, um, I, there's this weird, uh, oh, boy, a, a lot to unpack there. There is this weird sense that comedians now think that they have to that it's their duty to almost. Um, to change the world, especially generational. I, I'll tell you a story. There was um, at, at the nightly show, very political, obviously, you know, like a Black Lives Matter, um, you know, type of like left wing, sort of, you know, pretty extreme left wing yeah. stuff going on at that show. And um, so we had a, a, a former Letterman writer join us, sort of late in in our before we got canceled. So we brought this Letterman writer on. Fantastic writer, really talented, and he would always read the script after he submitted his things. Like at eleven in the morning, after everyone had written their first round of things, he would read everyone's material. And he said, "I could never tell who wrote it in terms of like what their gender was, what their race was, what their sexual orientation was. I could never tell. I couldn't. Is this a white guy? Is this a black lady? Who who knows? Who cares? But he could always tell the age of the person who wrote it because Uh. the younger people always had, you know, it was the Message was more important, you know. Getting that clapter, which is you know, instead of laughter, it's you get claps, just applause. So we call that clapter. You know, it was about making that point. It was about you know making sure that Hillary got elected. It was making sure that we talked about how important Planned Parenthood was, and that. And then there was the older writers who maybe believed all of those things, but we don't give. We just wanted to tell jokes. Um, and so that was sort of uh, you know a little bit of a divide there. Are so many talented writers there, but um, that was a divide. And I think you're seeing that a lot with the, the shows that are coming up now. Is that they want to you know go look at the Twitter feeds, go go look at the names of, go write down the 15 names on a, a writing staff, and then just go look at their Twitter feeds and see how many times you laugh, and see how many times you just go, oh, they're just angry.
1: Where do you? I don't think- know.
0: It's a problem to me.
1: Yeah. Where, where is there a patient zero for that? Like, is, is there any place uh, that we can go back and look and say that's when that became the norm? That that's when that was a a a reliable model that not only I mean, and to a certain extent, I mean, maybe not with with, with the nightly show, but certainly with uh, uh, as you mentioned Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel, both went increasingly political with a yep. lot of that same playbook and we're tremendously rewarded. Yes. Uh, it, um yes. Where where, where does it uh, begin, I guess? Is my question.
0: Well, I mean, I think everyone the 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 Daily Show with Jon Stewart and um and uh the the Colbert Report were both so good. They created such a fantastic format and you know, were a counterweight to the George Bush era, you know, the, against the Patriot Act um, type of feeling, you know, the, against that sort of government overreach. So, you know, you could have like a libertarian bent that you know, people could like that. Um, and the political stuff just got more and more attention and just be, it started churning out Emmys. Just Emmys, Emmys, Emmys. Yeah. As we continue to get more polarized, the comedy continued to get more polarized. And I think people just saw, I mean, Hollywood copies what works. Yeah. And so, I, to me, it's those two shows. They're great. They had great things to say. They performed it better than anyone could. Stephen Colbert gave the best comic performance of this century so far, doing that in character for nine years. I mean, let's be clear: what he did was absolutely amazing, and 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 true satire. Instead of just saying, you know, Donald Trump's a piece of. I and mean, they did true satire on that show. Whether you agreed with it or not, it was funny and it was smart. Um, and I think then everyone just copied from there. That, to me, while there may be, you know, a thing here or there that you could point to that preceded them, to me, that's the patient zero for this movement. Where it, and that—that's not to blame them, but it started to me there.
1: You know, I, I, I would what do agree. You I would agree. Really, the 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 one thing that I think might also be the warning sign was there was a point in which, and this was after Politically Incorrect when Bill Maher went to HBO, there was a point that I had to stop. I I couldn't watch it because I couldn't stand the audience. And even now, (laughs) it wasn't him, because a lot of the jokes were funny, right? They're obviously politically pointed, but he he obviously, for whatever you think of Bill Maher and his political opinions, he does care about jokes. He likes to put jokes on the air. Uh, But Every time there was something that rung, that that specifically kind of hit a political target, the audience went on so disproportionately long that it altered the flow. And I don't really watch the show anymore, but I I kind of empathize with Bill Maher because he seemed like he was getting annoyed with the audience because the audience was screwing up the rhythm of of the segment. and I think that was probably yes. the the only thing before. Obviously, John Stewart just kind of totally reshapes the mold of what a, yep. a, a political show can be, and how smart it can be, and how much it can wear its personal opinion on its sleeve. Uh, uh, Colbert heightens it to this absurdity, uh, this absurdity level that nobody had ever really kind of seen before. But even then. You know, Colbert goes on O'Reilly and and has this element of like Papa Bear, you're my hero <laughs> relationship with O'Reilly. And Jon Stewart, even though he, you know, acts like uh, his foot was in a bear trap, uh, you know, goes on Chris Wallace's show and goes on Crossfire. Amazing. Like there are these elements of like, OK, well, if you really want to talk about this, then talk about it with people that are doing it professionally where there is just this kind of like. Uh, uh, uh sneeches on beaches with stars upon Thars that we have now, where it's like everything's separate to the point where, you know, I, I really am curious to talk to you of the difference in in the energy or how you need to come to your job between somebody that between the BS of a which, uh, uh you know, obviously is on the blaze. You were talking to a lot of conservatives and the nightly yes. show, which I guess let me ask you this question: that seemed to me from the outside to not only be a show that had a political point of view and was obviously at this big moment uh af in a post stewart late night comedy central realm but yep. also was you know a very black show a very important black show in in an era of yep. black lives matter so uh, yeah. uh, how, how do you the decidedly not black jack uh oh, fit into complete. that Oh, what were you saying? The decidedly uh, not blackjack? Yeah, how do you fit into that? How, 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 how was that going into that? Well, I mean, I got my woke card, and
0: yeah. uh, it was good for two years, and unfortunately <laughs> it expired. Uh, um, you know. Uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. I mean, I, in, in my interview, the BS of A, it was interesting. Larry brought up the fact that I had worked for a, a channel that basically was trying to make Tea Party people laugh. Yeah. And he thought, was, um, he thought that was a positive. He thought that it was good that I could make anybody laugh. Um, And that's one of the reasons that he said, I got the job. Um, So, you know, and and kudos to him um, for, I mean, not just for, you know, feeding my family, but for for having an open (laughs) mind. Um, and trying to have uh, people with different views, because you know that's where you can get some of the best stuff. Uh, you know, some of the great political stuff on Saturday Night Live in the late '80s was done by Franken, by Al Franken, as obviously a big liberal, and then Jim Downey is a conservative, and they would do all those amazing debates to do and Perot and all that stuff. They, you know, they were doing all that stuff um, with different points of view and just just knocking it out of the park. Um, you know, I, I wound up at the nightly show. Um, I I guess just because you know, I guess I had a good joke packet, and because I, they thought I could make anyone laugh, which um, I don't think is necessarily true for um, other writers, and that's not you know, and maybe they're funnier than I am. uh, So I'm not trying to make myself seem uh, awesome here, but but it's a skill that I have that I I don't have an agenda. I can just make. You got to be smart enough to know. The sides and and be empathetic enough to listen, even if you don't agree with it. I think you at least have to know what bothers people. And um, I think the modern day comedy writer uh, would struggle telling jokes and helping out, quote unquote, the other side. And I had just the opposite experience at the b s of a um and I was a more liberal person uh, certainly at the time um I got there and had lots of reservations about it and I just found all the people to be absolutely delightful the the viewers the the, yeah. the fans the the those people I just thought they were they were smart and funny and informed and kind and loving and uh, and goofy and and i it really made me it helped humanize me in that sort of um Uh, You know, they cling to your guns and your God type of uh, way that liberals can look at conservatives, which is absolutely true. And I was guilty of it. Then you get to know them and you're like, oh, they like wacky Rick and Morty funny stuff like I do. And then you realize, like, oh, we're all the same here. Between the
1: BS of A and and the nightly show, are there any kind of targets or or rhythms that that you found because obviously we are all people that like comedy but as a comedian and a writer you have to read the room are are there any certain things that liberals or conservatives tend to gravitate toward that you noticed in putting stuff on the air
0: well that's a good question um boy well it's funny it, well, I'll tell you a couple of the weird landmines that we ran into. Okay. It, because it, it, to me, it's almost more about the things that you can't put on the air. We would—I'll give you an example from both shows. So on the BS of A, we did—we did a sketch where um, we basically said uh, that polls are showing that uh, Obama is leading Romney, and so we—you know—we make some jokes about it, it's sort of in that. Um, sort of in that SNL way of like, how could I be losing to this guy? You know, the things were not, you know, great in the country. Um, You know, how can Romney be trailing? That was sort of the point of view of the piece where it's like, wow, this guy has, you know, doesn't have a great chance. This is in like September of that year when everyone finally reluctantly got on the Romney train, even though they didn't want him in the first place. So then we do this thing, and we got killed for it. They're like, if we wanted to hear that stuff, we'd w- listen to M- MSNBC. You, you know, why, why is Glenn allowing you know such liberal points of view? And it's like, oh my God, I, it was election time, so it was like time to get serious for these people, uh. and. And so it was like it was not cool to say that Romney was going to lose. So that that that, was
1: that was something where you were viewed as kind of dancing on the grave of something that they cared a lot about.
0: Yeah, or just that like, like, hey, it's time to circle the wagons here. Like we're all on the same team. It's we got to get Romney elected. And all we were doing is basing a comedic premise on the fact that he's losing according to the polls. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just true. (laughs) Yeah. It just was true. Like there's no, there's no agenda. There's no belief in that. It was just, we read the paper and we wrote something to it and boy, they, they were pissed. (laughs) Now at the nightly show, I, I, one of the things that I did is we we would have like Donald Trump on a, a a comedian who would play Donald Trump and we'd interview him once every couple weeks. And I was always uh, tasked to writing those chats and i we would always write these things where you know obviously he would say these horrible things, you know i I love the blacks, the blacks love me, and all, it just all you know all this stuff, but the more horrible things, the really sort of funny jokes, you would have him say horrible things, and the audience couldn't see the satire in it. They just heard horrible things and were like, oh, how could he say that about black people? And we're like, I know that's what we're saying. That's the comedic point of this is that, oh, you know, maybe it's not, uh, you know, calling all Mexicans rapists is not maybe the way to go. But they couldn't hear hear the satire of it. They just heard it and then groaned. It's just you just get lots and lots of groans in your pieces because they didn't want to hear anything bad. They just wanted to hear – that you know he's he's a bad man. They didn't want him to be a bad man in a satirical way because they just couldn't hear those things, so
1: that's one where I would guess it's like you just can't there is no ceiling. so like to to go back to your people for the ethical treatment of sand thing, like obviously, <laughs> sand is inanimate. It's not uh, a you know a, a sentient creature. So it's funny that people would have empathy for it. In this example, <laughs> there's no ceiling like there's no for the audience for that audience watching the the Donald Trump character can say out and out comically racist stuff but it's not yeah. parody because it can't go past that ceiling for them like he uh, Donald Trump as a character in their minds is somebody that is capable or is saying anything that you could possibly say behind uh you know behind closed doors uh, right. And, and and that is just not fun. It's not funny to highlight that part of his personality.
0: Right. And then it's one of the tough things about doing comedy in the Trump era. I think there are one or two things that are exceptionally tough, one of them being it's very hard to heighten off of him. Heightening is you know, an incredibly important thing to do in comedy. You have to your joke has to sort of you can't keep telling the same joke in that same sort of area. You have to sort of like keep pushing the envelope sort of up and up and up. Um, so you can't just have Donald Trump come on and say the same level of wacky stuff that he has to say. He's got to say wackier stuff. You know. You have to caricaturize him a little bit. And um, so that's 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 just a challenge. What, what, it's just a challenge. So my my going theory on that
1: him. is that that's a problem because Donald Trump himself has known that and has built his entire brand and career, even pre-politics, on the idea that the only way you can get attention is if you heighten something beyond where people are mm-hmm. expecting, and so it's it's just like point. that that's like like a, like a double that uh, you can't do the same thing. If he's doing something, pointing out that he's doing it and then doing it again is is kind of a, a non-starter.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. It yes, good point. And when the, the other challenge to me about doing Trump comedy nowadays, and you sort of alluded to this when you were talking about the way SNL does it, um, which is often just by having him say the same things he said, like just having Alec Baldwin literally verbatim repeat chunks of a press conference or or quotes of his. Um that's not that's not finding a take. That's not finding anything uh, new or interesting, um, which is uh, problematic to me. Well, and and the other problem with Trump humor is that you know a joke works because there's an element of surprise, like you don't see the punchline coming. With Trump, we all know the basic landing point of the jokes, which is that he's a bad, evil man. Um, he's stupid. He's corrupt. He's, you know, small hand. Like we we know where the jokes are going. Yeah. So even though the, you should make fun of the president, of course, um, it's sort of it takes away the element of the laugh because, you know, where it's you know, where it's going.
1: The one thing that I have been surprised about, because this is always kind of the rule of comedy, and I think part of the we need to get the message out element hampers this because it, it is fundamentally a, a derivation from the narrative, is that when you have a character that is so defined, and that is the problem with Trump, is that uh, he is just an absolutely defined character, uh, the, the natural thing in my mind would be to take him on an adventure. Right. Like, like have him be obsessed with Baskin Robbins or he likes to draw in his spare time and he really wants to be an artist or something. There's there's a a million different things when everybody knows exactly who he is putting him in these situations. And if you look at some of the best political comedy, let's go back to SNL for a second. But like, you know, uh, uh, the Phil Hartman, Bill Clinton jogging sketch, you know, uh, in, in McDonald's or whatever. It's like that's something where. Bill Clinton was a character. He was fat, yeah, a, cheese, loved... a cheeseburger eating cad. Yes, exactly. But he was smart, and he was a and he was a BS artist, right? So, yep. like like that all kind of came together because you took him on an adventure, and that's something that I just I, I I don't know if it exists. Like I haven't really seen it. Like even in like you know Colbert's uh, uh animated show, it just kind of yep. seems confined to the white house and confined to kind of talking points where uh, uh i don't know it, that, that if there's one thing that i would say is is kind of missing is just an element of creativity but i guess you can't if the point is you gotta make sure everybody knows that the president's a big dumb idiot with small hands who
0: likes pee. exactly and they people just so truly hate him yeah, whether it's earned or not, I mean, you know, I'm not passing judgment on whether you hate or don't hate the president. They hate him so much, and, and and Alec Baldwin is a perfect example of this. There's no twinkle in his eye when he plays it. It's almost just like drinking vinegar. Yeah, you know, it's it's you, there's no joy to that. You know, I mean, Will Ferrell playing George Bush even in that sort of frat brothery, you know, big energy, simple dumb. There is a twinkle in his eye. You know, his little <laughs> laugh and yeah. Um, there's no joy in that portrayal. It's it, it is very difficult to watch. Well, and, and so
1: let's 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 take that Will Ferrell example because I do think that this is another one of the big signs on on the road to where we are comedically is that publicly, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay have been mm-hmm. you know they have kind of put on hair suits about how much they feel they. Uh, made George W Bush a more likable person. The the actual president became more likable because these very famous, very well-received sketches that they wrote made him a bit of a lovable dullard. Uh, is is that an element that that you've felt in in writers' rooms where people feel like, well, we don't want to tell too funny
0: of a joke or else people might actually like him. Um I mean, I have not personally had that experience. Um, I mean, I know people I, – I know the, the writers who have an agenda worry about that sort of thing, about a, a joke that it might seem to humanize him. Um, like there was – we had a, a segment when I was at the Nightly Show that – where Sarah Palin had a thing where she said something that we all agreed with, but it was sort of like we almost didn't want to cover it because it's like Sarah Palin and how could she be right? It's just sort of like I, – I, I don't know that to me – that's just not personally where i'm at um so that is not something i i know people feel that way i i know lots of writers feel that way i do not
1: <laughs> sure 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 all right let me let me let me last question here we'll wrap up on this in my mind obama was kind of a dry spell for political comedy for two reasons number one i think unless the president is a big character. It's sometimes harder for largely liberal writers to write about a liberal president that they admire and double and triple that with the first black president. I thought yep. we would have a better time with Trump because Republican presidents are usually high watermarks for political comedy. That is certainly not panned out at least up till this point. Uh, is, is political comedy just always going to be in this, or or do you see signs that, that we will kind of get back to maybe some more character-based things where jokes matter?
0: I, I think you see from some of the specials that have come out, uh, from Dave Chappelle, from Aziz Ansari, um, obviously Ricky Gervais just this week uh, at the Golden Globes. I, I think you're seeing enough funny people who are kind of getting a little bit sick of just how woke everything is that i mean certainly there's a, a civil war in comedy right now um in terms of you know what you can and can't say that's no fun to be around um uh, so I do. I do have hope that it can return. Um, I think Trump, just like he's broken every rule and every metric that we've ever known to be true, you know, he's he's breaking things here. You know, check back in with me once he's out of office. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, certainly, things won't change while he's in there because he is just so reviled. Um, but I, I do have hope. I do have hope. I mean, there are still smart people out there. The, if you haven't seen it and if your listeners haven't uh, seen it, go watch the Black Jeopardy sketch with Tom Hanks on Saturday yeah. Night Live from the 2015-2016 era uh, right before the election, where it's basically you know, a black, two black panelists on, on Jeopardy and then a white – Tom Hanks is a white Trump voter. And what they learn is that, oh, they're all the same, that it's really about class, not about race. This incredibly smart and hilarious, fantastic point of view. I mean, the, just the best political comedy of that year. So it's still out there. I yeah. believe it, we can. It can be done. That's what we're trying to do on our podcast. Questionable material. Um, <laughs> it, it, we just want to tell. We just want to tell jokes. Like, let's just make fun of everybody. Michael Chase says that you should make fun of of every group at least once a day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, then then, real quick, uh, uh, let everybody know. Obviously, everybody, uh, or, uh, a lot of our listeners loved uh, listening to uh, uh, the interview with Brian, and I'm sure that they're oh, going to disagree. love this one. Strong disagree. <laughs> Hard pass. Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about questionable <laughs> material?
0: Yeah, so it's it. Well, it's funny. We we come on and we just you know we, we do bits for the entire show. It's just um, it, we tell you know do some personal stuff. We talk for five or five or eight minutes in the beginning, just you know uh, to get the let the audience know about us. And then it's just nothing but doing bits. So we had um, uh, <laughs> we had Joe Biden's gaff writer. Um, you know, all of the crazy things that Joe says, uh, you know, apparently are, are written out and planned ahead of time. So, you know, we, we do these fake interviews with guys like that, with um, like the head of tourism for the Dominican Republic, where Americans keep going <laughs> to die. And he's like, you know, it, it, you, you can do funny topical stuff without it being all impeachment. And that's what we try and do. We find try and find topical things that we think are funny and just do comedy around them.
1: Shocking, revolutionary concept questionable uh, yes. questionable material is the podcast and my guest has been jack Helmuth. uh thank you thank you thank you so much man for uh, being
0: on the show thank you you, you i've I listened to your podcast it's really really sharp it's really enjoyable good congratulations politics and a big thanks
1: one more time to jack Helmuth. go listen to questionable material Follow him on Twitter at Jack, H-E-L-M-U-T-H. That about wraps it up for us today. If you would like to support this show, well, you can be like our Titanic $10 tier. They are DL, Lindsey, Steven, Quiet, Jinsei, Squid's Mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, d Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. You want to be like them. You want to ball out. Head on over to com. $3 gets you two bonus podcasts, but you get shattered out at the end. If you're at the $10 level, of course, you can always email me, theyoungamerican at com. Music has been provided by Valesco and Trap Killers, and you can follow me at Justin R Young everywhere. Friends, a friendly reminder for you. You know, politics has three names. That's just a fact. Scientific, all right? Some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. Still more. They talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all...